the tragedy and the enduring questions of the war in Iraq 20 years after the invasion. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube, on video, on the Blue Amp channel. I'm joined as always by my co-host, former U.S. congressman, a man who ran for Congress because of the war in Iraq, Paul Hodes. And our expert guest, we're really privileged to have him back. He's a friend of the show, Sean Carberry, who has a resume that's almost second to none when it comes to understanding the entire trajectory of what got us into this war, what happened in this war, and the lingering consequences. He's the managing editor of National Defense Magazine. He's the former NPR correspondent based in Kabul. And he also was in the office of Inspector General overseeing the lingering operations in Iraq. Just a bevy of expertise. We're really happy to have you back, Sean. Thanks, Matt. Paul, great to be with you. Part of what teed off this conversation was an article you wrote on your Substack, which is called Passport Stamps. I urge people to check this out. It is a fascinating read. Your article is called The Decision to Invade Iraq Has Not Aged Well. Kudos to you for elegant understatement. But I think also, it's also brilliantly titled because we were talking off air right before we started up the show about We've all been reading kind of some of the evaluations, including for people who were involved in the decision, the cheerleading to, to go to war in Iraq, who are reevaluating what they thought and why and what may have been just totally wrong and what may have been understandably off base 20 years later. But so let's talk about that, that decision to go to war. Now, you lay out in your article that there were multiple voices at the table, both real and metaphorical who were coming to bear as part of the George W. Bush administration. They were arguing to go to war. They all had their own access to grind. They all had their own reasoning, but they they nonetheless coalesced around, this is going to happen. So set the scene for us. What were the reasons? How did we arrive at this point? Yes. So as there were a variety of people who came to this with some predetermined ideas about Iraq, should George W. Bush get elected, and he did, and then the opportunity was there for people to start putting some of these things on the table. And some of it dates back to 1991. You had the first Gulf War, and the United States knocked Iraq out of Kuwait, but did not knock Saddam Hussein out of power. And that was a controversial decision at the time. There were a number of people in the H.W. Bush administration who dissented from that, felt that Saddam should have been removed. So there were lingering feelings among people, such as Dick Cheney, who was in the H.W. Bush administration, along with a number of others who were in the W. Bush administration. So there were feelings then that the job was unfinished. Then through the 90s, you had the regime of no-fly zone and containment of Iraq, and that effectively ended in 1998 after UN scandals. The United States Congress passed a law at that point, the Iraq Liberation Act, which made it U.S. policy to seek the removal of Saddam Hussein. And in between 1998 and 9-11, the U.S. did continue to carry out airstrikes in Iraq to contain Saddam Hussein. So you had people who believed all along he was a threat, he needed to be removed. 
you had some people on the left, the neoliberal interventionists, human rights people like Michael Ignatieff at Harvard, who was a strong proponent of the war on the grounds of removing a dictator committing human rights abuses. So a pool of people coming into this. And then at the time George W. Bush became president, there were a lot of trial balloons going on already before 9-11 about Iraq and removing Saddam Hussein. Iraq was heavily part of the Republican convention party platform in the summer before talking about removing Saddam Hussein. So a lot of churn, 9-11 happens. It unleashes a greater sense of urgency about addressing potential threats to U.S. security. And the weapons of mass destruction argument, as even Paul Wolfowitz said around that time, was the easiest one for everyone to coalesce behind and to agree on and to make a, an international campaign around that as the primary justification. The secondary justification, which was even more specious, was that Saddam Hussein had links to al-Qaeda and was potentially involved in 9-11, which was messaged very heavily to the point that polling showed a lot of Americans believed that at the time of the invasion of Iraq. However, that was stretching terminology such as links and other things to really thin level. But again, it came down to WMD was the clear argument. It was compelling in a post 9-11 environment and the sense that this was a person who was threatening the safety and security of the United States. A couple of things. First of all, I will say that Robeson left out of your bio that you were my campaign manager for my 2004 congressional run. It was an exercise in futility, but but got some name recognition. And we had we fun. We did have fun, and we won't go into all of that. We'll save that for another show. It's actually a movie, not even a podcast. Can we but, do the 20-year anniversary show next year on yeah, that one? There we go. There we go. But well, well, It's less of a fiasco than a rock itself. That's arguable. But in 2004, <laughs> none, nobody was ready to say that Iraq was a mistake. We campaigned about it, but nobody was buying it. By 2006, when I got elected, it was the central pillar of the dissatisfaction in the public. People had the public sentiment about Iraq had turned. And in fact, when I got to Congress, I was so pissed off at seeing all these paid for talking heads on television spewing this stuff that I introduced a bill, as I recall, to try to do something about Pentagon propaganda, claiming that what they had done was actually using the kind of propaganda techniques they ought to be using overseas on American citizens to sell their policies and tried to do something about that because it wasn't just MSNBC, CNN, et cetera. It was all over the media. And look, ultimately, the press got fooled by all the bullshit that the administration was selling about Iraq in the, in the run-up to it and in the coverage. It was clearly, I think it was a failure. What do you think? And why, did, why was the press bamboozled? Yes, and that was really the central piece I was looking at in, in my articles, reflecting back on that, because I guess I would say I had the luxury of being part of the press, but not inside the Beltway press. So at the time, 9-11 up through the invasion of Iraq, I was at WBUR just south of New Hampshire in, in Boston working for a program called The Connection. 
We were a daily talk show, so we were doing heavy coverage in the post 9-11 time period and then transitioning to the messaging around Iraq. And I felt, and I think a lot of the other producers and the hosts of the program felt in that period, particularly in 2002, that the substance wasn't matching the messaging. It was a very aggressive messaging campaign, again, around weapons of mass destruction and potential ties to Al-Qaeda, but I didn't see it. I didn't feel that the case was being made. I didn't feel that the intelligence being released was convincing. But the messaging was overwhelming. It was in an atmosphere of still fear and shock from 9-11. And I think you get into this DC dynamic of the notion of access and some of the chumminess that goes on among the elite DC media and power brokers. And the Bush administration also was very aggressive about lording power and access over that they would try to push away journalists who didn't cover things favorably. They would remind people that access and interviews with top officials was contingent on conveying the messaging. And so I think a lot of journalists did get caught up in, in the momentum. I think for some people who also maybe didn't have a great grasp of how intelligence works, accepted things as fact when, as we've discussed in previous episodes, that intelligence reports are not black and white. They are assessments. Like the with- famous 16 words in the 2003 State of the Union address where George W. said, well, the British government has found out that Saddam's been trying to buy uranium from Africa, which was true-ish in the same way that George Santos is Jewish. You don't look true-ish. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out that was only true-ish. The British intelligence had made an assessment that there had been meetings and there was something, but it didn't mean what George W. and the administration implied that it meant. That's the thing. There was a lot of cherry-picking of facts that that was going on at the time and things you could see. Yes, this was technically true. It was in an intelligence report. But if you read on either side of that phrase, all of the cautioning and the degree of confidence and language like that's used in intelligence assessments, you could say, we assess with a low degree of confidence X. And if you just take X, you have a nugget. So no question that that was going on. And look, that still goes on. That's simply a reality of how people use intelligence. But in, in terms of the media aspect, and as I noted in my article, that There are a lot of people today who are looking back and 20 years later saying, I I did get swept up. I believed some assertions that weren't really accurate. I had an overvalued view of American power in the world at the time. And people have been coming out, as I quoted some of them, Max Boot or Robert Kaplan, who have said, yeah, basically got it wrong. And on one level, it's nice to hear But it doesn't change what's happened over the last 20 years and the fact that people were part of an echo chamber involved in selling a campaign that was not necessary. All the evidence has come out since then. Saddam didn't have weapons programs, wasn't a threat, wasn't connected to 9-11. Look, he was a horrible guy. And from a human rights standpoint, good for the world to get rid of him. And he was certainly a threat in the region, but I I just don't think the case was ever there that taking him out and the cost 
to the United States that the country is still paying today was worth what was sold at the time. Right. It was all basically under the rubric of what Charles Krauthammer, the conservative columnist in the Washington Post, called a blanket anti-son-of-a-bitch policy, which is, and I remember George W. saying these kinds of things at the time, but they would, people would point out, it's, gee, it seems like there are not maybe weapons of mass destruction there. And he'd just say, he's a bad man. And as if that were a self-evident argument, it's, oh, he's bad. There are many bad people in power in the world. That's not the question. The question is, are they a threat? Here's another question that I think baffled people, for people who are removed from this, maybe they don't remember it. Maybe they're too young to really have lived through this. And I was a congressional staffer at the time going through the throes of this. There's no issue that defined my work in Congress, my time spent more than the war in Iraq. And so what always baffled me and what I think consumed a lot of people was the fact that you alluded earlier, it was an open secret. We were going to attack Iraq. We were just looking for a causus belly. We were looking for some kind of excuse. It was even during the campaign, the summer of 2000, you can go back and look this up. People are saying, George W. wins. The first thing you should do is buy Northrop Grumman, buy stock and defense contractors, because we're going to start losing up a lot of ordnance. So we knew this was coming. We knew it was coming for three freaking years. And there's this kind of, image that set in over time that like this was going to be a cakewalk and militarily winning was not the hard part. It was all the failures afterwards. Fiasco, as the journalist Thomas Ricks calls. But that's not really true either. I was watching an old Saturday Night Live episode the other day that they were airing for the 20th anniversary of the invasion in which they have a bunch of soldiers asking Don Rumsfeld, hey, when are we going to get some armor for our vehicles? When are we going to get some bullets for our guns? There's one guy there with no pants. I would like to have pants, please. There was a massive military planning failure as well. Why? How on earth could our military have screwed up the planning? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This also gets back to the media question as well, is why didn't the media ask tougher questions about the plan for the invasion and the immediate aftermath? And why did the media accept some of the answers that were on the level of, it'll be a cakewalk or the whole shock and awe, the regime will fall quickly, US forces will be greeted as liberators, the Iraqi people will rise up and embrace democracy, all these wonderful sounding things. But when you applied scrutiny to it, you said, wait a second, there's still practical realities. If you go into a country and knock down the regime, that by nature creates a vacuum. What's going to fill it? Do you have enough forces to come in essentially almost on the level of peacekeepers to maintain stability and security to allow for some type of administrative transition? And none of that existed. It really was this kind of war on the cheap. And there were a lot of pressures around that. Look, the administration didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. They didn't want to get involved in a nation-building campaign. Administration officials said that repeatedly and outright ahead of time is the U.S. doesn't do nation-building. And even some of the military leaders who were reluctant to invade in the first place, wanted it to be quick and wanted to get out quickly. So there, there was this sort of just this hope that 
it would fall, liberated Iraqis would rise up. And some of that attitude was frankly supported by people like Ahmed Chalabi and some of the Iraqi expats who had been feeding information to the administration about how things would play out and how people like Chalabi could walk in and get people to coalesce and, and stabilize. But then there were the series of intentional self-inflicted gunshot wounds, to use an unpleasant term around it, but deciding to eliminate Iraqi security forces, deciding to debathify and eliminate technocrats and people who had been associated with the regime who knew how to keep the lights on and things running in the country. But because they were associated with the Ba'ath Party, they were excluded. And so there was this intentional exacerbation of the vacuum that was created. And State Department wasn't really brought into a lot of the planning. State Department was cautioning that the Colin Powell doctrine, you break it, you bought it. You're going to need a lot of resources and people to come in and backfill when the regime falls. There was some very deliberate decisions made about going in with a light force, quickly toppling the regime and not believing that there was a need for a substantial hold and stabilization force and effort. When I got, I got elected to Congress in 2006, largely on the public's dissatisfaction with the war. When I got there in 2007, was on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, and we started to hold hearings on what was going on. Like, where are these billions of dollars in pallets of cash? And why is there no accounting for it? And who, by the way, was in charge of anything having to do on the ground in Iraq? And what we heard was, basically, the administration has rounded up a bunch of 22-year-old flacks, all of whom wanted jobs in the administration. We had nowhere to put them, so we sent them over to Iraq to run things. So I took a trip, a Codell. It was wonderful. A, a real a real flyby Codell to Iraq. 72 hours in a bulletproof vest and a helmet, corkscrewing into the airport, landing in the green zone. They put us up in Saddam Hussein's former pool house. He had a bad he had bad taste in decorating, but the pool house was pretty sumptuous. And there's this empty, of course, next to the pool house. And some huge building had been converted into a mess hall that was being serviced by a corporation on whose board Dick Cheney had previously sat. It was all very cozy. And there was something oddly just weird about eating Kellogg's cornflakes and McDonald's in the green zone next to his old pool house and being accompanied everywhere by, frankly, private militia hired by the U.S. government as security, not even soldiers all the time, and going around in vehicles that some of which were up-armored and some of which weren't. So you had this crazy follow-on to the toppling of Saddam, and it's left a big question. So we can talk about whether or not we won in Iraq. And I know you have some thoughts about what the word winning means when it comes to Iraq. But we have all these myriad decisions about reasons to go to war and a real failure to figure out just how hollow the Iraqi capacity to govern was, to figure out the sectarian problems and plan for them. And I'm wondering whether or not did, did what we do afterwards 
make everything worse? Could there, obviously there, there could always have been a better way, but was this a winnable war? And if the word winnable doesn't apply, was there a more acceptable outcome than losing 4,500 troops with hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians killed and wounded with $2 trillion of a bill and climbing for the problems that I discussed firsthand with General Petraeus when I went there. Why are our soldiers killing themselves in Iraq at this crazy rate? Why do they? Why do the veterans continue to have these problems? What are we doing? The trillions of dollars are going up. What was there some way to do it better? Yeah, the clear answer to that is is yes. And as we just discussed, in terms of the planning, both military and the follow-onization efforts could have been mapped out in more detail with more sort of risk recognition and saying, okay, best case scenario, shock and awe falls, the Iraqis rise up and take over the country and everything's fine. Okay, that's one extreme. Other extreme is predicting what did play out, which is you create a vacuum, end up disenfranchising people who had been in power, create stoking sectarian tensions, leading to a, a imposed top-down government as opposed to something grown a little bit more bottom-up, and leading to insurgency and years and years of violence. Those are your two poles. You could argue that what played out could not have gone much worse. So somewhere in the middle, yes, with more planning, with more recognition that, okay, worst case, if there is resistance after Saddam falls, what would be needed? And there were certainly, again, people like Colin Powell who were putting some of those arguments on the table about what would be necessary. So I think there's plenty of evidence out there that yes, it could have been done better that you know the word win arguably yes it was a win at strategic levels saddam was toppled so number one he was toppled the threat of wmd was eliminated but that was eliminated because they didn't really exist and eventually phantom, that's the phantom menace <laughs> and eventually the insurgency that cost thousands of American and Iraqi lives was contained in the 2008 period with the sort of perfect storm of the U.S. surge, the, the Sunni awakening, and the creation of the Sons of Iraq program. All of those sort of coalesced in 2008 so that by the time I made my first trip to Iraq in the summer of 2008, the war was largely over at that point. I was walking around on streets in Baghdad where soldiers told me that a few months prior had been just outright combat. So the insurgency, the counterinsurgency fight was essentially won. And then there were several years of transition because in 2008, the Bush administration and the Iraqi government agreed U.S. forces would leave at the end of 2011. So then the effort was on trying to build up the Iraqi security forces and the government to be able to run things. Fast forward to the end of 2011, I was there for the, the departure of U.S. troops. Within hours, actually, I think it was within minutes of the last troops crossing the border into Kuwait, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki started a crackdown against his political rivals, and that started sowing the seeds of instability that went on for three years, 
and created a vacuum for ISIS, which was an evolution of Al Qaeda in Iraq, which did not exist prior to the US invasion. ISIS rises up, seizes a massive amount of territory in Iraq and Syria. 2014, US troops go back into Iraq and Syria to combat ISIS, which did not exist in 2003. And troops are still there today. And as just happened yesterday, uh, there was a, a strike against a, a coalition facility in Syria that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded some service members. So the fight is ongoing. It's a different fight. It's not Saddam. It's not WMD. It's a fight against terrorists who did not exist in Iraq and Syria in 2003. If you're looking at the win on the original campaign, more or less happened in a long, ugly fashion, but where things are today is now a counterterrorism campaign with no end in sight because the Iraqis are not able to contain it on their own. U.S. forces are needed. U.S. forces are in Syria in very precarious positions with the regime, Russia, Iran, Turkey, all having different interests, creating the, I would say the thorniest foreign policy challenge anywhere in the world is in Northeast Syria right now as an extension of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. That's, that's maybe not a bad jumping off point to what I think is the ultimate question on Iraq, the final analysis question. Now, I know we also do want to cover a little bit of the work that you're currently doing on Ukraine. I'll leave that to Paul. A situation like this and an anniversary like this invites an alternative history analysis. And that is, by definition, an exercise in total speculation. All you can do is sort of speculate, look at models of other things that have happened and draw analogies. So on the one hand, the writer David Frum, who was George W. Bush's speechwriter, was part of the effort to sell the war in Iraq, writes in The Atlantic that he regrets that. He cops to the fact that he made mistakes, that the administration made mistakes. And yet he offers two proof points just to get people to slow their roll a little bit on the assessment that there was like a better path here that if we hadn't invaded Iraq. One argument is what you just alluded to, which is, well, look at the experience of Syria under Assad. Imagine a Saddam Hussein with his absolutely insane son, like a heretical, hereditary, I should say, not heretical, a hereditary dynasty fueled by rising gas and oil prices over the last 20 years, flush with cash, and continuing to foment instability and violence around the world and repress, violently, horribly repress his own people, who he, by the way, had gassed with chemical weapons previously. So that's one proof point. It's don't fool yourself into thinking that a world that still had Saddam Hussein atop Iraq would be a good world. And the other argument that he makes is, look at Afghanistan. What's common to say, well, Afghanistan was a good war. Iraq was a bad war. We did well in Afghanistan. We screwed up Iraq. But of course, you were on this program last year around our withdrawal from Afghanistan, and you were part of the Inspector General's office assessment of our effort in Afghanistan. It did not end well. I don't think that, I don't think that any assessment of it would say that we won that engagement there. We accomplished some things. But I, look, I think Frum's analysis is interesting. On the other hand, what I see on the other end of the ledger 
as I imagine the, what are the consequences? For one thing, for 20 years, we totally shifted the focus of our military and foreign policy toward counterinsurgency because we overlearned the lessons of Iraq. Mitt Romney was laughed at in 2012 when he was the Republican nominee for suggesting that Russia was still our number one threat in the world. People were like, oh, you foolish Cold War warrior you. And now, of course, he seems to have been prescient. There's the fact that we did fail so badly in Afghanistan. Maybe we would have done a lot better there if we hadn't take the, our, taken our eye off the ball there. There's the way Iran has become so destabilizing to the rest of the world. And maybe we wouldn't be in that boat. And then there's a horrible human consequence here. 275,000 Iraqi civilians are thought to have died. 4,487 U.S. military personnel is the official tally of dead and 32,226 wounded. But estimates confidently assert that the real number of wounded U.S. service personnel is closer to half a million. The long-term cost, about $2 trillion. And so that long stem winder of a recitation there for you, Sean, is all in service of asking you, how do you assess it ultimately? How do you, when you think about the but-fours and the alternative histories, what is the lasting legacy and consequence here? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, so a lot of things to, to unpack, but I try to look at it through a fairly, frankly, a fairly cold realist lens and look at, okay, what are alternatives? At the time of the invasion, Saddam Hussein was a weak dictator. He could rattle, he could make noise. He certainly couldn't do harm to the United States. He could be disruptive in the region and clearly was doing horrendous things to his own people. But he was contained. Containment was still a possibility and an option. I mean, there were efforts to get UN inspectors back in. There were methods to, to contain him that I think were far cheaper in real dollars and long-term social cost than what the invasion unleashed. Now, another alternative history, as we were discussing earlier, is if it had been conducted with more planning, with more resources to keep things contained in the weeks and months after the toppling of the regime, it could have played out much better. Fewer lives lost, less instability. Again, we don't know. It's, it, so we can look back and guess a lot of things, but I think some of the things that I see as direct consequences of the decision and the invasion, one of which is the, the situation in Syria where you have a dictator who is arguably more sadistic in some ways than Saddam Hussein was. Bashar al-Assad has used chemical weapons. He has just slaughtered his own people in, the, in response to the Arab Spring that launched in 2011. It is an ongoing situation. But because of the experience in Iraq and the chaos that that unleashed and the realization of the resources needed to topple a regime like that, Assad has been able to say, there's no way the world is going to take me out. They know it'll make Iraq look easy, what will be unleashed in Syria. So Iraq, in some ways, has empowered Bashar al-Assad and made some things worse there. Again, the situation with ISIS would arguably not exist without the invasion of Iraq. Then you look at, as you also mentioned, the opportunity cost in terms of China and Russia who kept their powder dry during that 20-year period, 
and let the U.S. fight it out, expend its resources, focus on counterterrorism operations, and not build towards next generation military capabilities to confront a rising China or a Russia and Ukraine type of scenario. The U.S. is pivoting, is playing catch up, is making huge investments now looking toward the Indo-Pacific and a potential future Chinese invasion of Taiwan, but opportunity costs there. And then certainly you have the emboldening of Vladimir Putin during that 20-year period. And he opposed the war in Iraq. He argued it was illegal. He argued that it was a sovereign nation that was not a threat. But when the invasion happened, Putin sat back and said, okay, lesson learned. Might makes right. The U.S. is, in his mind, violating international law. It's doing it because it's strong and powerful and no one can stop it. Lesson to me as ruler of Russia, be strong, be powerful, and I can have my way. And you started to see from that time on greater Russian assertiveness, adventurism in the region. You had Georgia in 2008, you had 2014, Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and Putin didn't really pay a price for any of that. So it just further emboldened him and he saw the United States struggling in Iraq, struggling in Afghanistan, and assessed the nation to be weak and not a threat, and therefore he could take the actions that he has subsequently taken. So he has used all of these things that have gone on to justify his actions, come to conclusions that turned out to be wrong in terms of the Western cohesiveness in the face of Ukraine, Western support for Ukraine. But I think all of really much of what is going on today has, if not a direct genesis in the invasion of Iraq, certainly shaped, again, alternative histories. It's interesting to an extent, right now we have the present and we have an emboldened Putin who invaded Ukraine. You have China that's been getting more assertive in the region and the US now trying to play catch up in terms of next generation weapons and deterrence and putting the focus on peer competition as opposed to counterterrorism operations. Paul, you're muted. Yeah, I just want to take that just a little bit further because the world substantially changed and the threats we face have substantially changed since we left Iraq. We had geared up so to speak, to fight counterinsurgencies and non-state actors all over the world. As you've just laid out, we're now facing a surging Russia and China, which China just claimed this morning that they had repelled a U.S. warship in the South China Seas. We said, no, the routine, they just went in, they went out, don't worry about it. But clearly, we're now in a new, in a, in another complete inflection point with major state actors with major economies boldened to take aggressive action. And our defense posture has had to change very rapidly. Now, we don't have troops as far as the public knows in Ukraine. And I'll, I put that in quotes because that's as far as we know, there are no troops in Ukraine. But we have been supplying an awful lot of weaponry, but not as much weaponry as Ukraine has asked for, and 
not as much weaponry as Ukraine might use to to truly go on an offensive with Russia. It seems mostly defensive defensive weaponry. Is the caution an outgrowth of our experience in Iraq? Did we did we should we have learned that it was that we needed more shock and awe and surge in Iraq to stabilize things and we really should that's what we ought to be doing in Ukraine. What's the hangover? Is there an Iraq hangover at work in our defense establishment when it comes to Ukraine? There is on the weapons and systems side in the fact that for 20 years the investments were in weapons and approaches designed for a permissive environment where you didn't have the Taliban didn't have an air force. Right. The uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq didn't have an air force. So you didn't have the need for high tech stealth or long range capabilities, things that are now needed in a peer competition environment. So from an investment standpoint, there's definitely a hangover in terms of the equipping Ukraine aspect of it. Look, this has been a concern from the outset with Putin, right? Putin threatened that if anyone opposes his actions in Ukraine, he will respond. And has, he's played the nuclear card multiple times. So he's made threats. Ukraine is not a NATO country, so Article 5 was not invoked. So the United States has had to walk a line there and look at what is the right amount of support that is non-escalatory to the point that it forces Putin to, to call his bluff, essentially, is whether or not he's going to go to the next level. And then there, there is the realistic side of this. There's certainly an emotional urge to give Ukraine everything, right? And on one level, you want to give them everything possible to get Russia out. There are practical considerations. One is, do they have the capacity to operate all the systems? Can they maintain them? Can they coordinate internally? There are real issues about how much you give them and when you give it to them. And, and you've just written about this. Yeah, yes. And specifically, people I've been talking to in DC, some, some have argued that more should have been given sooner. Others have said, no, it's been about right, because if you gave more, the Ukrainians couldn't necessarily have put things to use. So there's been this gradual escalation of capabilities to the point now that Patriot missile batteries are about to make their way into Ukraine. The U.S. donated one, and Germany and the Netherlands have assembled another battery. I was just out at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where the U.S. Army is training uh, group of Ukrainians, about 65 men and women from Ukraine on how to use the Patriots air defense system for against ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, Russian aircraft, potentially UASs. And this was a, an interesting case because the Ukrainians that were brought in for this training, most of them have spent the last year on the ground doing air defense operations in Ukraine. They've been using the Russian S-300 system, other systems. And so they come out to Fort Sill where you have army personnel who do training for 5,000 people a year on how to use Patriots. Most of the army people have actually never used Patriots in combat. And here they're saying they have these Ukrainians who come in, they've been shooting things down for the last year. And they said, first of all, they knew all the basics. So 
we could skip all of the, a lot of the rudimentary training on the Patriot system. And then the Ukrainians in some cases were saying, actually, that's interesting how you do it. We'll probably do it this way. And so there's actually this sort of feedback loop now where Ukrainians are potentially providing real world feedback. And then when they take the Patriots into Ukraine, we'll provide feedback that could help U.S. Army and the Defense Department modernize training approaches, modernize investments in future systems. There's a replacement for the Patriot on the horizon. There's this unfortunate case where Ukraine is providing some real-world feedback in peer conflict that is informing the U.S. Again, to the question of, is there enough? Is there reluctance? The big thing that everyone's talking about are F-16s. Right. Ukraine has been asking over and over again for F-16s. A lot of people in Washington say, send them F-16s. Others saying, well, wait a second. It's a fourth generation aircraft in a non-permissive environment. It's not going to make a huge difference today. What the Ukrainians really need is they need more long-range artillery because the Russians have been able to set themselves up at greater distances from what Ukraine's been given and then more air and missile defense. And so that's why Patriots are going in. That's why there's talk of the what's called the ATACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, which is a longer range artillery. That's what I'm, I'm hearing more and more talk about getting those systems in, and those are gonna make more of an immediate difference than things like F-16s, which are really a longer term concern about building up the Ukrainian military for when this conflict is over and it needs to maintain self-defense and deterrence going forward. I'm glad that we ended on that note because it illustrates in real time how hard all of this is. We're, we've been doing a lot of retrospective analysis with 2020 hindsight about what was clearly a series of disastrous mistakes, a fiasco. And yet the irony is that the same 20 year anniversary that we're marking with Iraq is also it also coincides with the 20 year anniversary of George W. Bush, who's come in for a lot of criticism right now, including on this show, launching the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, which is credited with saving 25 million lives worldwide because of the AIDS epidemic. And so you don't know as you're doing these things what's going to be the truly historically consequential act. And you don't know what the alternative histories are going to look like. I'm not trying to absolve the decision makers of 20 years ago by any means. I'm just pointing out that not only are these assessments complicated, not only are these decisions really fraught, but we're continuing to make them right now. And we don't know what world-shaking decisions are being made that you're reporting on right now, including what weapons do we send? What signals do we send? What moves do we make? when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. So if people want to get insights into those kinds of consequential world-shaking decisions, I suggest that you read Passport Stamps. It's on Substack. It's from Sean Carberry. You can also find his work online all over the place, including on this podcast. What's the name of your article that's out right now on National Defense Magazine? It's just in Ukrainian's Quick study on Patriot System, U.S. Army taking notes. Thanks so much, Sean, for walking us through all this incredibly fascinating history. You're welcome, guys. Always a pleasure.